Hi, everybody. This is God Sad for the Sad Truth. Uh, today, I have another fantastic guest uh, whose work I admire greatly. Hugo Mercier, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm so excited to have you. Let me just uh, mention a few uh, elements from your bio. You're a cognitive scientist at the Jean Nico Institute and a permanent scientist at the Centre National de la Recherche Scientifique. Your mm -hmm. main areas of research are human reasoning and the evaluation of communicated information, which maps exactly on your two books, which mm -hmm. is the latest book, 2020, Not Born Yesterday, The Science of Who We Trust and What We Believe. I don't have yet a physical copy, so I can't show yeah. it. But the <laughs> other one, I do have a physical copy, and it's even cited in my last book, yeah, The Enigma of Reason, unbelievable book with Dan uh, Sperber. Did I cover the key highlights of your bio? Is there anything you want to add? That's perfect. Thank you so much. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and as I told you offline, people love it when I speak in one of the other languages. So <laughs> if I may in French, uh, je m'excuse du fait que l'Argentine a détruit <laughs> l'équipe nationale. Détruit, mais pas du tout. <laughs> C'était les tirs au but. C'était pas du tout. <laughs> uh, bon. Et, et, et est-ce que je peux. Résumé que si je viens vous visiter à Nantes, il va y avoir des billets pour le match Nantes-PSG et vous allez m'inviter au match. Oui Alors, Je suis malheureusement, je ne suis pas un grand fan de foot moi-même, je, je suis plutôt le rugby. Donc euh, à l'automne, il y aura la Coupe du monde de rugby. Donc on peut, on peut essayer d'aller voir des matchs de la Coupe du monde de rugby. <rire> <rire> ok, I just, uh, for those of you who don't speak French, I first uh, offered my... Uh, Apology for Argentina. All of you know that I'm a huge Lionel Messi fan for Argentina defeating France. And then I asked Hugo, who is who lives in Nantes, uh, whether we can go see a game of Nantes versus Paris Saint-Germain, which is where Lionel Messi plays in his club. And he said, very surprisingly, that he's not much of a fan <laughs> of soccer, but of rugby. I didn't even know that that was possible for a French <laughs> not love uh, soccer more than anything. But okay, are we ready? Yes, fantastic. Thank you. Okay, thank you so much. So what I want, what I'd like to do, this is maybe the third time on my show that I mentioned this quote. It's a quote by Leon Festinger that actually I I quote Leon Festinger. For those of you who don't know, is the pioneer of uh, uh, theory of cognitive dissonance. And in chapter seven of the Parasitic Mind, where I'm talking about how to seek truth, and then right after that quote, I get into the Enigma of Reason by by Hugo Mercier and Dan Sperber. Here's a quote that I'd like to read to you uh, because I think it perfectly distills your theory of argumentation, Hugo. You ready? Mm -hmm. Here we go. So this is from Leon Festinger. A man with a conviction is a hard man to change. Tell him you disagree and he turns away. Show him facts or figures and he questions your sources. Appeal to logic and he fails to see your point. We have all experienced the futility of trying to change a strong conviction, especially if the convinced person has some investment in his belief. We are familiar with the variety of ingenious defenses with which people protect their convictions, managing to keep them unscathed through the most devastating attacks. But man's resourcefulness goes beyond simply protecting a belief. Suppose an individual believes something with his whole heart. Suppose further that he has a commitment to this belief that he has taken irrevocable actions because of it. Finally, suppose that he is presented with evidence, unequivocal and undeniable evidence that his belief is wrong. What will happen? The individual will frequently emerge not only unshaken, but even more convinced of the truth of his beliefs than ever before. 
Indeed, he may even show a new fervor about convincing and converting other people to his views. Uh, end of quote. Doesn't that perfectly distill, in a sense, what you're talking about in the enigma of reason? No, it, it does. It does do that to 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 a great extent. Yeah, and it's a, it's a lovely quote, and it's a good uh, prelude to, I guess, what is the his book about the you know that that sect that was you know holding you know doomsday beliefs. But um, but we also actually in in the book we also stress the fact that people do change their minds, like when they are confronted with good enough arguments. And when the stakes are maybe not that high, um, they do change their minds. But even there's, there's this example I love that we that we cite in the book of people who have extremely strong convictions, and then when and yet and yet when they when they heard the right argument, they all completely change their minds. And it's it's the story of uh, you know at the beginning of the 20th century, some of the greatest minds in in Western philosophy and, and logic and mathematics were trying to build you know to keep things kind of simple. We're trying to build uh, logical foundations for mathematics. So you have, you know, Bertrand Russell, David Hilbert, you know, um, Whitehead. And these people have devoted their lives to that project. You know, they have written, you know, thousands of pages of the Principia Mathematica for Russell and, and, and Whitehead. It's there. It's all consuming. It's really like something they've, they've devoted everything they could do to, to that project. And then at some point, uh, they read um, Kurt Gödel's uh, proof, uh, is his incompleteness theorem. And right away, they're like, okay, we're wrong. We can't do it. And they drop everything at once. They, you know, it was like it's hard to imagine something that was could be more deeply valued to someone. You know, someone who had sunk more energy into doing something than than this. And yet, because the proof was irrefutable, and and these people were clever, you know, indeed extremely smart, um, they couldn't escape its logic. And and because of it, they immediately uh, accepted the conclusion. I, I I love that you. I mean, I have a mathematics background, so I love that you gave that specific example, which kind of in a, in a way segues, but I don't want to get there yet to something that you've been studying, uh, I think more recently, intellectual humility, which I want to get back mm -hmm. to. So in a sense, they're, they were exhibiting the ultimate manifestation of intellectual humility because it had great personal cost to them to say, oh yeah, I'm wrong, you're right. And yet they were able to do it like the good dispensers of, of truth that they were. But yep. be, before we get to that, uh, let's. I want to continue a bit on uh, the enigma of reason. So uh, mm -hmm. of course, for those of you who don't know, you, you are very much of an, uh, all of your work is very much rooted in an understanding of the you know the evolutionary roots of our cognition our behaviors and our emotional system and so on so in the enigma of reason you argue that uh, you know we we didn't evolve this kind of domain general capacity to to seek truth but rather we evolved this reasoning capacity to win arguments uh maybe tell us a bit more about that from an evolutionary perspective and then <clears throat> no, thanks yeah um, so from an evolutionary perspective, the, the the standard view of reason doesn't make much sense, I think. So the standard view of reason that has been defended by people in a way, you, you can find that in Descartes already, and, and nowadays you find that in all the proponents in, of kind of dual system processes, such as, you know, Danny Kahneman and, and, and many others. And in this classical or kind of individualistic view of reason, um, the function of reason would be to correct uh, mistakes that the rest of the mind does. So you you, do, you know you have this dual system. You know something that's also kind of popularized by by uh, Jonathan Haidt. Uh, you have you know most of your intuitions and your emotions. You know things that happen quickly and unconsciously and, and without much effort uh, that work well most of the time, but that are kind of prone to making um, systematic mistakes. Um, studied you know by Kahneman and Versky and many others. And then you have the system to reason that is supposed to be like the rational actor who can, you know, calm things down and weighs the pros and cons and, and correct your correct your intuitions and, and your mistaken uh, uh, intuitions. 
And the issue with that view is that it, from an evolutionary point of view, it doesn't really explain why humans would be the only ones to be able to reason. Uh, I think, you know, it's, if, if it's such a great ability, then, you know, everybody should be able to do it. And it's also not clear how it's even possible in the first place to have one cognitive mechanism that would be able to know better than all the other ones. You know, it seems as if, you know, the, the natural way for evolution to do that would be to just improve on, on these mechanisms that tend to make mistakes instead of having this kind of, this, you know, semi, you know, you know, uh, God, homunculus, who can fix everything. And so we don't think that this classical view is very plausible. There's also a ton of evidence that it just doesn't work. For instance, um, one of the most striking traits, uh, and that is kind of very well-evidenced traits of, of human reason, is that it has a my-side bias, or what people uh, often call a confirmation bias. So whenever you're looking for reasons, you tend to find reasons that will support whatever you think was right. And that's what, you know, the Festinger quote you were citing, um, you know, uh, relays very well. And that bias is, I think, completely incompatible with this kind of individualist, individualistic view of reason in the sense that if you had a well-designed mechanism to help fix your intuitions, then clearly you don't want it to start from the point that your intuitions are correct and you're just going to justify them. You know, that's the opposite of, of what you want to do. And so to, to replace this, this view, uh, Dan and I have developed an alternative, which we believe is most more kind of solidly grounded in, in evolutionary theory. And in this alternative, um, evolution would have two, sorry, reasoning would, or reason would have two main functions. Um, one of them is to find justifications. Um, so in the evolutionary rational is, is as follows. Um, we know that humans cooperate to a, to a great extent and much more than you know, other primates, for instance, and to cooperate, we have to constantly gauge uh, the traits of other people. We have to figure out who is honest, who is nice, who is benevolent, who is you competent. Said populate? You know. No, no, no. Uh, to evaluate the, the 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 reputation of others. Oh, sorry. Okay, I, okay. No, no, no. no. Yeah, we also have to copulate, but that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's yes. um, And we also anyway. Um, and so, uh, and the problem is that. Oftentimes it's hard for people to to know, you know, why we're doing the things that we do. And so we might do things that might look bad, that might look like we're doing something that is morally dubious or that is a bit stupid. Uh, and then thankfully we can justify our actions to others. Uh, so, you know, for instance, if I had shown up uh, late for the recording, I could have told you, well, look, you know, my son was sick or something. I could have told you why I was late in such a way that you don't hold me, you know, accountable. You don't think less of me uh, for being late. So that's, according to us, one of the functions of reason. And the other comes with communication. So one of the other uh, big uh, human characteristic is that uh, we are very, very good at communicating, much better than, than other primates. And the issue with communication in an evolutionary context is that we can't just trust others uh, because other people might have different incentives from ours. And so you have to evaluate what they tell you, which is you know, something we'll probably revisit later. And one of the ways of evaluating what people tell us and deciding whether they're right or not is that they can give you arguments and then you can evaluate these arguments. And so in our theory, um, reason would have evolved both to produce justifications, to justify our beliefs and our decisions, and reasons to uh, convince others, and also to evaluate uh, the reasons and justifications and arguments that others give us so we can know whether we should, we should change, change our mind or not. Got you. Now, is, is there a psychometric test that is able to differentiate across individuals the extent to which I use my reasoning abilities 
in the way that you're suggesting? Or is this something that is invariant across all people? We all have 10 toes and 10 fingers. Everybody uses reasoning for the exact same purpose. There aren't much of individual differences on that. So there will be individual differences clearly in the proclivity to do it. You know, there are people who really like arguing with others, even about, you know, topics that are of no great kind of personal uh, relevance. And most, you know, academics obviously fall in that category. Um, And there are people who just don't like that so much. Um, Obviously, you'll have differences of ability, like in every cognitive trait, you have people who are a bit better than others at it. But our assumption or our, our hypothesis is that this is an evolved cognitive mechanism and if you grow up in a in a normally developing, you know, if you're normally developing and you have a standard environment, everybody will have, you know, everybody's reason will work broadly in the same manner. Gotcha. And indeed, so for instance, like we, we've done experiments, um, we we have a set of experiments showing that very small children are able to evaluate arguments and to discriminate between kind of very strong and very weak arguments at least, and and they can probably do better, but at least this is what we've shown. And we've shown that that was equally the case for um, kind of small-scale populations uh, in in Guatemala, and these populations are interesting because um, essentially, you know, kind of rich people in the West are the only people who really talk to their children a lot, uh, except to tell them to do things. And so, you know, we give them reasons. We, you, know, you can't do this because of that, and you know, we justify our actions. And and nowhere else in the world do people do that. And so, in in that community. Kids are mostly exposed to imperatives from from adults. Adults tell them what to do, and that's it. Um, and so they have, in in some sense, a you know a slightly impoverished environment in terms of exposure to to reasons and arguments. And yet they had exactly the same ability to discriminate between good and bad arguments than people in the than you know kids in Switzerland or in France did. Beautiful. So uh, this actually is a, is a nice segue to the next question because you mentioned so you know you're doing research in in developmental psychology where you can kind of address some of these innate mechanisms and you're also doing it cross-culturally which of course is another part of the toolbox of you know evolutionary psychologists not succumbing to the weird bias and so on uh which leads me to so in 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 the same chapter uh, of the parasitic mind in chapter seven where i quoted the festinger uh quote uh i talk about uh nomological networks of cumulative evidence right the idea mm-hmm. and so you might you you might remember the, the wonderful paper by uh schmidt and pilcher where they you know introduce mm-hmm. you know he, here is an adaptive argument that i'm trying to make and now i'm going to generate these distinct lines of evidence coming from across cultures across time periods across methodologies across frameworks all of which will be will serve as a you know epistemological triangulation on steroids to demonstrate the veracity of my position and so i i developed that argument in that chapter and Mm so there what i'm assuming is that as long as you don't go you know la 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 i don't want to hear what you're saying as long as you've got the intellectual humility to at least be open to me hitting you with my nomological network of cumulative evidence that i can hopefully convince you but then the reason why i use your work (laughs) So I think you know where I'm going, but then yeah. you're coming along and saying, well, wait a second, you can give me all the tsunami of evidence that you want to prove that I am wrong. I My reasoning capacity did not evolve to actually listen with an open mind to your nomological network. I'm not going to listen. So does that become an impenetrable, intractable problem? Because most people are going to go, la, la, la. I don't no, get- I think I think actually, so by default, people should be quite open. Like we, we think that, 
one of the functions of reason is it's so it's not only to produce reasons to convince others. Uh, and then when it does, when it produces reason, uh, we should be biased because it makes sense. You know, I mentioned earlier the confirmation bias or the my side bias. And if my goal is to convince you, then clearly I want to mostly find reasons for my point of view or, or against yours. But we also predict that people should actually be relatively open-minded and, and relatively objective when it comes to evaluating other people's arguments. Um, and so... We think that reason itself does a good job of that, um, but uh, there are many other things that can get in the way, and in particular, uh, and that's what kind of Fistinger studied a lot, for instance, uh, there are kind of social constraints that mean that in many cases, when we are um, socially committed to a point of view and everybody knows we hold that point of view and we've, you know, we've, 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 you know, we've done actions based on that point of view, um, there is there will be a cost to changing your minds. You know, people will we might think you're a flip flopper. They might think that you're unreliable, especially because in many cases, people won't know why you change your mind. You know, they just see that you've changed your mind, but they don't know that you had a good reason to do so. Um, and um, and so you know, I think yeah, people they have the ability to do it. There's there's actually this one quote that I, I don't know by heart, but I I really like by Martin uh, Luther, the you know theologian, um, who says that reason is a, is a harmful whore, and that we should you know blind it by you know throwing dirt at it. And what I like about this quote is that I mean Luther was a prolific author, and he, he wrote you know thousands and, and thousands of arguments. He was using his reason all the time. So what I think that illustrates is the discomfort we feel when we are exposed to arguments that challenge our views. And so the very fact that we feel this discomfort, it shows that our reasoning abilities were able to evaluate the arguments and to recognize them as being good. Like if someone gives you a bad argument for something, then you don't mind. It's like, well, you know, no, just your, your view is just bad. But when someone gives you a good argument for a view you disagree with, you can't help but notice that, you know, oh, something I'm, I'm going to have to deal with. And you know, in many cases, you find counter arguments, and so you can get away with you know not changing your mind. But still, it, you know, it's there. Like you are able to recognize the quality of the arguments, even if they challenge your view. Nice. Uh, I think it was two thousand seven or two thousand eight. My first book had come out, uh, and I had been invited to the University of Michigan to speak both in their on separate days on their psychology department and in their business school. Mm -hmm. I gave, I gave, it was the same talk. There wasn't much overlap in the audience. And so uh, on a Thursday, I think I gave the talk at university, uh, at the psychology department. Psychology, yeah. yeah and, and people were like, oh yeah, great. Applying evolutionary psychology to study consumer behavior, decision-making, beautiful. Yeah. Makes sense. Exact same talk the next day at, uh, at Ross School of Business. I, I couldn't finish a single sentence that the hostility was arguably wow. the, the worst I had ever experienced because this idea of applying biology to study consumers was completely, it's completely insane. What are you uh, I'm surprised by this. Yeah. Wow. Well, I, I think they've, they've, this, yeah. they've kind of come around a bit, but uh, yeah. oh yeah, I, I faced a lot of hostility, believe me. And now the reason why I'm telling you that story is because in a sense, speaking about open-mindedness and, you know, revising your opinions and so on, I noticed, I mean, it's anecdotal based on what happened that day. I don't have data to prove it, but certainly what happened was that the more junior the people were in the audience, the the less resistant they were. The more senior the professors were, the, the more obnoxious and hostile they were. Now, it's very easy to explain that because if you are coming from a 
I mean, you would understand this term, but let me just explain the the SSSM model, the standard social mm -hmm. science model, the social constructivist model. We're born tabula rasa. It's only socialization that makes us the consumers that we are. And if I vested my entire career in that uh, framework, then here comes biology boy on his uh, white horse while he is threatening to me, even though technically I'm not threatening. We can certainly work together to have a better explanation for the phenomenon. And so they were quite hostile. Whereas the doctoral student who hadn't yet been vested for 20, 30 years in a particular paradigm were like, oh yeah, that makes sense to me. So do you think that as a what I just said, generally, the likelihood of my being anchored in my position is just a function of how long I've been committed to that position, no? Yeah, no, no, it's, it seems plausible. And clearly, there are reasons to expect that it should be the case. Like the more people know you hold a position, the more you you know, you know recognize as holding a position, the larger the social cost of, of changing your mind. Uh, but from a kind of purely kind of methodological point of view, the priors would also change. Like the doctoral students would have fewer priors, whereas uh, the more kind of experienced faculty, they would also have acquired a lot of knowledge that they think confirms their their view of the world. And so it's hard to tell whether it's it's the social thing or the or the priors changing. It's likely both, right? Uh, but it might also it might also have something to do with that. Yeah. Very interesting. Okay, let's now segue to uh, the the more recent book, and then we'll get into intellectual humility. So, in, in your more, your most recent book, it's uh, epis. I love that term, epistemic vigilance, and then you also link it to gullibility. Give us the main theme of the book, and then we can jump from there. So, again, starting from an an, an evolutionary point of view, um, there's this this kind of well established now theory of the evolution of communication. And one of the predictions of that theory is that uh, within any communicating organisms, whether they're kind of within the same species or, or across species, both the individuals that send the information and the individuals that receive the information should benefit from it. And the reasoning behind this is very simple, is that if as a sender of information you don't benefit, then you, you, know, you stop sending. And as a receiver of information, if you don't benefit, you stop receiving. And so both of them should benefit. The issue is that if you're not, uh, you know, talking about cells in an organism or maybe kind of bees in a beehive that have pretty much kind of aligned um, genetic interests, um, then you will have conflicts. So, you know, even, even you know, within a family, the, the interests, like the, the fitness interests are not perfectly overlapping. And, and as a result of that, um, there will be conflicts. And so, you know, even if you're, if you're a child, you can't just believe everything your parents tell you because some of, the, some of these things will be in their interest and not necessarily in yours. And so what, what that means is that it's going to be very hard in many cases for communication to work because of, of these diverging interests. And one way I think that humans manage to make it work is by having a suite of cognitive mechanisms that evaluate um, communication so that we can both kind of reject um, communication that would be harmful to us, that would be kind of inaccurate, and accept the communication, you know, the messages that, that, that tend to be more kind of beneficial to us. And so these are these kind of mechanisms of, of epistemic vigilance that I also call in the book kind of mechanisms of open vigilance to show that they're not just about rejecting bad information, but also about being open enough to to accept uh, you know information that we think is going to be good for us. Now, but so when you're talking about epistemic vigilance, let let's see if I if we can, I can put it in the context of you know one of the important tenets in evolutionary psychology, you know the domain's general mechanisms versus mm -hmm. specific mechanisms. So. I could be sharing information with you that inherently 
is in a domain general context. Uh, I, I'm telling you, you know, whatever you vote for this this political candidate, it it, it doesn't have a clear downstream effect to some evolutionarily relevant problem. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, in say intersex dynamics, where I'm a man who is trying to convince you, as if I'm speaking to a woman, yeah. that I will be forever loyal to you and I I'm going to be committed to you. But clearly, I may have duplicitous intent, and you, as the woman, has to be able to to see whether to gauge whether I'm truthful or not. In that case, the to use your term, the 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 vigilance is very much rooted in a domain specific calculus versus the former example, which was a domain general one. Do you look at epistemic vigilance across these two ways of talking about things? Yeah, no, that's 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 a, a great question. So, um, first, we think that. Epistemic vigilance is is domain specific to the extent that it is restricted to communicated information, and it seems as if we can, you know, it seems obvious, but we don't apply it at least not spontaneously to to stuff that we perceive. So, you know, if if I think that my colleague John is in his office, and and you tell me actually John is at is at home, I might not believe you. I might say no, no. I mean, I just saw him in his office. You know, you must be wrong. Um, whereas if I see that John is actually at home, then I will change my mind immediately. You know, I will trust my perception and I will revise my, you know, my memory will change. So it only, we only apply epistemic vigilance spontaneously uh, to stuff that other people tell us, which is a very, you know, narrow kind of restricted type of, of information, even though it's, you know, it, it can be about uh, just about anything. Um, but the point you're, you're, you're making a very good point. One of the so epistemic vigilance these mechanisms they will take into account a number of cues to figure out whether you should change your mind or not. Some of them will relate to the content of the information. Is it something that's plausible? Um, others will relate to the source of the information. Okay, are you are you knowledgeable about the topic at hand? Are you you know have you do you have reliable information? And one of the main cue that we take into account is uh, what are your interests? What are your incentives? And so if I believe that you have an incentive to lie to me, that you can benefit from lying to me, then I will be much more careful than if I think that your incentives are, are perfectly aligned with mine. And so that's where all of these mechanisms that are uh, more kind of domain specific in the classical sense um, uh, that you've mentioned will come into, into play. So if you're in this kind of mating situation, you know, kind of potential mating situation, um, you know that you know the man might try to you know uh, get you in bed and you know and vice versa. So it's just you know you, you have an idea of you know if you're playing poker, you know that you can distrust your closest friends because you know the incentives within poker are to just you know to to beat you and that's it. And so you know we're very good at taking these incentives into account. And clearly some of the cues that we use to do this are kind of you know some of these domain-specific mechanisms having to do with you know coalitions and mating and and other our understanding of of kind of the social life more generally. Beautiful. Are there? Do you look at whether evolutionarily relevant peripheral cues, and I'll I'll explain in a second what I mean by that. Whether they might impact my ability to be epistemically vigilant or not. So let me give you an example mm-hmm. of, of this big word mouthful that I just said. I am good looking or I'm not. I am tall or I'm not. So to the extent that let's say women would prefer a taller guy or mm-hmm. whether I'm good looking or not. Will, 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 will those evolutionary relevant, and I say peripheral cues because they're not really central to the argument that I'm making when I'm trying to convince you of something, right? So if I'm trying to 
push a particular idea to you, whether I'm good looking or not should not affect the veracity of that idea. But yet, my God, this guy is gorgeous. You know, the beauty mm -hmm. premium, he must be correct, right? We, we know that there is the beauty premium. We know that there is a height premium in the mating in the labor market. So does my ability to trigger my epistemic vigilant, vigilance change as a function of these otherwise irrelevant cues? So in principle, I would I would think not. Um, oh, I not, would think yes. Uh, yeah, no, no. I, mean, I, I think it was, so. I mean, I think I'm very much kind of like a modularist type of person. So my 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 thinking would be, um, you know, the mechanisms that tell you whether a source is reliable or not um, should not take these cues into account because they are not uh, they are not statistically correlated. You know, with being competent or being knowledgeable necessarily. But uh, at least when it comes to to not holding beliefs but to expressing beliefs clearly we want to ingratiate ourselves with people who are you know more you know good looking you know you know more powerful more you know who have a better kind of social situation and so we might be more likely to say that we accept something that comes from from someone who is you know socially desirable in, in a number of ways um, but it, i would still think that in terms of you know there should be your mind i mean it might be unconscious but your mind should be able to to differentiate these two things like do you accept the belief or not and then do you do you kind of publicly assent to it and and you know it's made so fine and that you know once you've publicly assented to it then it, it you know you might be committed to it and you know act on that basis and it can you know engender a number of things but i would still hope that your, your mind should be able to, to distinguish between these two things but when you say that when you say i i hope that your mind will be able to distinguish i would they're not statistically correlated it sounds if you forgive me for saying what sort of the classical economists do with the with the axioms of rational choice and in 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 behavioral decision making where they say well this is how you ought to behave if you're a normative rational person so it, it from an ecological rationality perspective it actually seems to me that i can argue that it doesn't matter that there isn't the statistical correlation that you are basing mm -hmm. your argument on because i'm precisely a a a creature that does fall prey to these peripheral cues, right? And this is why I look to how tall a president is, and that's a better predictor of whether I choose him or not than all of the policy decisions that he makes. We, we fall. Captive. Yeah, just, no, that's not true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's not the case. I mean, but what's not the case? I mean, otherwise, people would always vote like 90 percent of no, the no, people of would vote the tallest president. So. <laughs> No, but, but so, for example, yeah. just for you, I mean, I'm sure you've probably heard this example. Uh, I think when uh, Bush and Kerry were going against each other, the, the Bush's team had all of these conditions, yeah, right? <laughs> that, so that he true. doesn't look short. So clearly they do think that it's something to be managed and to, perceptually, right? Yeah, yeah, but the fact that they think it should be managed doesn't mean it has, you know, a huge impact. But um, I mean... It might have a, a you know very small impact at the margin. I'm I'm not you know saying otherwise, but but still I mean so you know evolutionarily, you know if someone is going to tell you look you know that mushroom is poisonous or that mushroom is edible, um, if you're start if you're listening more to tall people even though they don't know more about <laughs> mushrooms you're you're going to be in trouble. <laughs> right. Sure. Um, and so so you might say well okay no maybe if the guy is really absolutely handsome and you don't want to antagonize him you might say oh you know that mushroom looks great and then you just you know, don't eat it later on, but uh, but you should still be able to to know that you know what is telling whether what is telling you is true or not. So I wonder if uh, th this may be an opportunity for a future collaboration. Uh, 
could it be that the likelihood of my succumbing to peripheral cues is very much moderated by different domains that the information is coming from, right? So in the mushroom case, maybe the the, the tall and good looking doesn't matter, but in other situations, I can imagine that it, that its effect will be much greater. That, that yeah, possibly, possible. or it should depend a lot on 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 how whether you're testing like the you know the belief itself and its behavioral consequences, or more just you know the social consequences of stating the belief. Uh, I think that would that would be, but it, it might be kind of tricky to manipulate, but but not impossible. Right, got you. Okay, let's move on to intellectual humility. Uh, I just did a a, a clip on my um, show uh, mm-hmm. where I had just come across in in sort of in preparation for our chat. I I kind of did a deep dive into. The, the research on intellectual humility. And I came across a paper by Leary et al. 2017, which I'm presuming that you obviously know that paper. Possibly, yeah, you might have to remind me. Oh, it, it's a paper where they looked at one of several things. I think they had four studies, one of which was uh, core. So they there was a psychometric measurement of intellectual humility, mm-hmm. and then they correlated it with, I think, four personality traits. Mm-hmm. Uh, one was openness. People mm-hmm. who are more open are more likely to be intellectually uh, humble. They correlated with curiosity. They correlated with tolerance for ambiguity and mm-hmm. uh, low dogmatism. And then they, and then in a subsequent set of studies, so I'll just mention one. They showed that people who are intellectually humble would be less likely to ascribe a flip-flopping characteristic to a mm-hmm. politician who changed his or her opinion because they recognize that yeah i forgot in that yeah yeah so i i thought so i thought okay well we could talk about that and then situated in the context of your recent 2023 paper on intellectual humility but before i do that i want to uh motivate our conversation by by telling a story that i recount in the first chapter of the parasitic mind this is a conversation that i was having with a family member uh, out of respect for the person i never mentioned who it is but if they're listening they'll, they'll know who they are uh this is a situation where this person was telling me oh you know you know god those uh those ancient greeks yeah i mean those christians they were really they were really anti-semitic and i said well actually i my apologies i don't mean to correct you but th- they weren't they weren't christians he said no no what do you mean greeks they're they're christians I said, well, as a matter of fact, the way we 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 record the period is BC. BC is before Christ. So by definition, historically, we know they weren't not Christian. It, it's incontrovertible. When that person realized that there was no way to get out of it, then that person answered, right, right. I said that they weren't Christian and you said that they were. So it's the <laughs> ultimate form. Forgive the, the, I hope it doesn't offend you. It's an ultimate form of mind fuck right because that person is so intellectually lacking in humility uh there are actually words for it in arabic which is my mother tongue that even though that person is telling you that they know that you know that they're lying <laughs> and yet <laughs> and yet yeah. no no i'm the one who said so that's the i think a perfect anecdote to speak against the antithesis of intellectual humility take it away wherever you want to go with this no, no. I mean, it, it is really interesting, and I think it highlights something that relates to 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 our paper that you mentioned there, which which stresses the like the social component of of intellectual humility or kind of or, or you know arrogance. It's 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 uh, it's opposite, and the fact that in in some you know depending on the context, uh, 
either intellectual humility or on the contrary, intellectual arrogance can be socially beneficial. Um, so in most contexts, I think being intellectually humble sort of pays out because, you know, if you're careful in your pronouncements, if you if you avoid being overconfident, uh, if you listen to advice, you know, if, if you do all of these things that uh, more intellectually humble ten, uh, people tend to do, people will tend to like you more. You know, as, as a rule, they will respect your, you know, your, your efforts and, and your integrity. Uh, but in other contexts, um, clearly kind of appearing more kind of dominant uh, is going to is going to pay off. You know, there are you know it's maybe a little bit more true among men, but but clearly there are contexts in which you just want to show that you're the you know you're you're strong and and you're and you're dominant. And in these contexts, being intellectually arrogant can can be a way of, of doing that, saying no no I'm right and that's the way it is, is a way of kind of asserting your your authority. And um, and it can be you know socially beneficial at least in the sense that it's you know it can be you, at least you can think it's useful for you to be perceived as being dominant. Um, so, so our point is that a lot of the, I mean, plausibly maybe um, some of the reasons why we are sometimes intellectually humble and, and in other cases more intellectually arrogant have to do with the, with the social benefits or costs of, of being one or the other. Gotcha. Well, now, intellectual humility could be very much related to sort of the earlier quote of Festinger, you know, in light of incoming evidence that disproves my long-standing and cherished position, I'm humble enough to change it. So that's kind of one way we could look at intellectual humility. The other way that I've often used the term, not in the psychometric sense of how, you know, it might be measured, but I often argue that the reason why I don't get nearly in as much trouble as otherwise you might think, given all of the public pronouncements that I make, oftentimes mm -hmm. with great assuredness on very mm -hmm. thorny topics, is because I think I'm very well modulated about what I know and what mm -hmm. I don't know. And that's another way, I think, to measure intellectual humility. So, so to go back to our earlier term, you know, nomological networks of cumulative evidence, if I have built the rec requisite network in support of my position and you'd like to debate me, good luck to you. I'm going to walk into that room with all of the swagger, the intellectual swagger of someone who really is confident about what I'm talking about. I'm not posing. I'm not posturing. I'm just really confident. On the other hand... Mm -hmm. The reason why I don't get into trouble in very, very high profile settings is because if you were to ask me, hey, what, what is the, the net effect so far of the legalization of marijuana in Canada? And I will say, that's a great question, but unfortunately, it's it's way above my pay grade. I don't know enough about this. I mm -hmm. haven't built the nomological network. And therefore, you could never really catch me having bullshitted in a public forum because I'm very well modulated about what I know and don't know. Which uh, do, do both of these definitions of intellectual humility apply in your work? Capacity to change my position as, in light of incoming information and the modulation that I spoke of, the Confucius way of thinking? No, no, com completely. I think that the second ability you're referring to would be something that, you know, as you know, many psychologists would call that kind of metacognition. Yeah. You know, the ability to know, you know, whether you're right or not, and 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 whether, in, in your case in particular, not only whether you're right or not, but whether you have, you know, good arguments to 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 defend your point of view or not. And and indeed, I think a lot of people who work on intellectual humility uh, agree that being uh, well calibrated metacognitively, sort of knowing when you know something or when you don't, um, is one of the is a crucial uh, is a crucial element. Um, the argument that these people make um, usually is that, or some some of them make anyway, is that it's not sufficient to be intellectually humble, in the sense that if you're, you know, if you're, uh, you know, a mathematics professor at Princeton or something, and you're dealing with people who don't know anything about math, 
if you're extremely boastful and you brag a lot, and it's like, you know, look, you know, you're stupid and you don't know anything about math and I'm one of the best people in the world at math. Even if it's true, you're still being an asshole and you're not being intellectually humble. So, you know, it's not purely a matter of, 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 of uh, metacognitive, you know, you know, accuracy or calibration, but there's also this kind of social component of not being boastful, even of things that are, that are, that are true. Beautiful. Uh, let's move on to EP in general. Uh, so I guess question one in your, how long have you now been since out of your PhD? 15 years about? Yeah, in 2009. So yes, just short of 15 years. Okay. Uh, have you seen a growing acceptance within behavioral scientists in general of the EP framework, or are we still uh, fighting the exact same battles that we did? I think what I'm, I, but it might be because I tend to be an optimistic person. I think we've seen some some progress uh, in the sense that not necessarily kind of acceptance of kind of high church, you know, Santa Barbara to be in yeah. cosmetics type EP has grown necessarily, but but at least kind of weaker forms of just you know taking some evolutionary arguments into account or feeling as if you have to have some kind of evolutionary rationale for your theories. Uh, things are, I think, becoming more common, um, and I think to some extent. Um, like a strong antipathy is turning into into just people not caring that much about it, to be honest. So, for instance, in the in the field of reasoning, which 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 I you know I I know quite well, um, I think there was some antipathy to anything that would have been evolutionary. That was true, you know, as as you know better than I do. The you know across the social sciences, and so they had inherited that view that was kind of anti-evolution. And now I think that they're not opposed to it, but they don't really care that much about it either. They don't they don't feel as if they have to have some some plausible evolutionary rationale for for their theories okay. they just don't discount anything that is you know evolutionary they just don't really care that much about it so it's a form of progress i guess <laughs> right. you know right. and and then hopefully at some point then they will, you know get them to realize that it's really important to, to to think that way and and uh so yeah but i don't know what's what's your what's your take do you think things are going better or you know i i think so i think that the 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 regrettable part is that there is a set of cognitive and emotional obstacles that will always be there, irrespective of how much progress there is. Because I can't remember who said it. it I don't know if it was Bus or someone that some of these cognitive and emotional obstacles are inherently themselves evolutionary based. So that it is it is almost an indelible part of reasoning for people to view some of these evolutionary explanations with some suspicion but i do think at, at a field level at the epistemological level i i'd like to think that there is less resistance if if only i use my own uh career as a as a exemplar you know you, know, my, uh, you go arguably my favorite quote of all time and i don't have it in front of me so i'm going to butcher it i'm going to paraphrase it mm -hmm. is one by uh jbs haldane whom mm -hmm. I, do you know? I'm sure you know who that is. Uh, so he's got this quote where he's talking about the four cognitive stages that scientists go through before mm -hmm. they accept a a theory. And mm -hmm. and stage one, yeah, this is bullshit. This is garbage. Well, this may be true, but it's perverse point of view. Stage three, well, this may be this is true, but largely unimportant. What's the actionable? It's, it's nonsense. Yeah. Stage four, oh, I always said so. 
Well, yeah. I, I, and so yeah. it's a perfect example of, of, of you know, these reasoning arguments at, at, at the scientific level. And I always argue that, you know, if I were to ever write, if I were ever to be presumptuous enough to think that people care about me writing an autobiography of my scientific career, that quote would be the entire book because yeah. it captures my life. I still have emails, Hugo, because I'm an email hoarder from people mm -hmm. who were at stage one when they first responded. <laughs> and, and, and then, right, and then they're at yeah. stage four. Dear God, we would be honored to have you come. I'm like, oh, but what happened to I'm a complete yeah. bullshitter, perverse idiot, imbecile. So, so I'd like to think that we are changing, but I think there's a lot more work to do. Do you think that, so if I try to situate the French ecosystem in terms of their acceptance or antipathy towards evolutionary psychology where where would they fit on that arc are they are they more pro are they less how to say compared to england uh, the, when... uh, well you know so traditionally england has always been a kind of hotbed of, of adaptationism of and so and so they had this tradition that was very strong and it's very strong in kind of behavioral ecology and in kind of in ethology um and so it might have helped uh, with you know some acceptance of evolution um, in, in the social sciences. In France, unfortunately, um, evolution by natural selection, you know, since it was you know it was the the Brits that had invented that, and they had they had proven Laplace wrong. It was it was uh, <laughs> Lamarck, no, not Laplace, right? Lamarck obviously they had Lamarck, proven Lamarck yeah. wrong. It was it was it was it was very bad, and and they're still you know until you know 30, 40 years ago. Kind of great French thinkers who are trying to prove that Darwin sort of not wrong, but you know, when of these things, oh, actually, it was you know natural you know, evolution by natural selection should be rethought, blah blah blah. Um, so there, so France is not well situated for that, um, and so that's really one of the questions that I think you are going to ask me at some point. So when I first encountered evolutionary psychology was in by reading the French translation of of How the Mind Works by Steve Pinker, kind of come off Oh yes, yeah. okay, and, and which was you know an, an absolutely kind of awesome book. And and that was also my first exposure to evolution by natural selection. Like I was in college, and so I had never really in my school year had been exposed or sufficiently exposed to to the idea of evolution by natural selection, which I kind of fell in love with immediately. And and so in France, I think evolution by natural selection on the whole is not something that people stress. Um, I mean, there are a few kind of amazing you know biologists doing very very good work in that area, but you know on the whole, I think the French ecosystem is a bit you know it's not something that they really love. And so that that got transposed to to the applications of evolution in in the social sciences. I don't think I don't know if it was worse than the U.S. or in other places, but it was not better. But and you, I'm asking you here to speculate. We don't know for sure. But do you think the fact that some of the you know holy dispensers of postmodernist bullshit all come from France, Jacques Derrida, Jacques Lacan, yeah. uh, Michel Foucault, the rest of the gang? Could it be that because it's a hotbed of postmodernism, there are no absolute truths, everything is relative. Now here comes the evolutionist thinking. Of course, there is a you know, universal, you know, human universe. Could, could that contribute partly to why some of the evolutionist stuff did not get picked up in France? Plausibly, yeah. Um, and France is, is, I think, I guess for structural reasons, uh, intellectual changes happen relatively, maybe slowly in France. And for instance, you know, psychoanalysis is still is still important. Yeah. Um, also in Argentina, I think, the two countries in the world. In which, so, <laughs> right. Uh, so it's one of the things when we, they did not beat us. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> and, 
and so because of this inertia, you know, it's possible that we're taking even you know more time than other countries. But but things are also progressing mostly, you know, in the good direction. Like for instance, if I think of of you know my my advisor Dan Sparber, who is you know an anthropologist by training, but who got interested you know quite quickly in in, in a cognitive and then kind of evolutionary approach. For a long time, he didn't even want to take on PhD students because he knew they would they would be doomed. Like they could never find a job in France because it was you know, completely impossible. Whereas things are you know very slowly changing uh, in the right direction, and now like all of his you know PhD students, when when he finally got some, we're all working together. We have positions, uh, you know. So we're you know it's a small-ish country, so a few people make make a significant difference. Amazing. Well, for for the listeners who may not know, I mean, Hugo mentioned that it's how the mind works. That was his epiphany into, you know, EP and evolution in general. For me, it was uh, Homicide by Martin Daly mm. and Margot Wilson. It was a first semester doctoral course. at I, I did my PhD at Cornell and my uh, supervisor, who's a cognitive psychologist by training, asked me to, or suggested that I take a, a course in advanced social psychology. It wasn't an EP course. And about mm -hmm. halfway through the semester, the, the professor in question, his name is Dennis Regan, uh, assigned Homicide. And for those of you who don't know, Homicide is a book by two of the pioneers of EP, whereby they demonstrate that certain patterns of criminality happen in very clear reasons because of evolutionary you know, our causes. And I mean, it was like a, a thunderbolt hit me because I thought, oh my God, I can't believe that there is such an elegant and parsimonious way to explain all this. And then that's how I decided, okay, well, I'm going to apply this framework in consumer behavior and so on. Uh, and, you know, it's funny because I've had both on my show and just in private talking to several, you know, evolutionary psychologists, and they all can point to sort of an episodic memory yeah. where they're, so that so there's really something quite beautiful about the fact that we can all point to that's what it was. Any any comments about that? No, no, but I think it's really. I mean, you know, I don't want to compare you know, either kind of homicide or, or or even how the mind works to to that. But a lot of mathematicians or even scholars, more generally physicists, recall uh, being first exposed, especially you know from older times, being first exposed to Euclid's elements and having the first exposure to mathematical proof and being kind of having their minds completely blown. By, by the idea that you can have a mathematical proof that is perfectly demonstrative. And so, you know, so it's quite this, 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 this kind of these epiphanies are quite often reported in, in, in the history of science. So, you know, I don't want to compare myself to, you know, Einstein or anybody, obviously, <laughs> but, but it, it, it does happen. And it, I think it's a good sign. It means that, you know, there is an idea then that, okay, no, this is, you know, we have this ability to recognize good ideas and, you know, what I think are good anyway. And, um, and then we kind of build on that, and it's quite, it's quite, uh, it's quite striking, yeah. Well, and I love, I mean, so right now we're talking about how we as researchers were first exposed and had our mind blown. But if if I may say, and I'm sure you you can have similar stories, I, I get as much thrill, if not more thrill, when now I am the one who is serving as the epiphany to a student who comes back to me five years later and says. I, I'm, I just had a fight with my wife and I remember your lecture <laughs> on the evolutionary roots of jealousy and it was exactly what you talked about yeah. in the Davis bus study. Uh, there's yeah. something quite magical about that, right? No, no, I agree. I mean, uh, I, I'm, I guess, you know, fortunate or unfortunate, I don't know, to mostly teach quite advanced students. And so I'm, I'm really the first person to expose them oh, to these yeah. kind of ideas, unfortunately. But uh, but I can still see them, you know, when you give them a new example of a, of a nice, you know, evolutionary piece of reasoning that like, explains things neatly, when you know things fall into into place, you know, as you are describing when you when you when you read homicide, 
Um, and it is, it is pleasant, yeah. Uh, have you had, so going back to our earlier uh, conversation about people changing their opinions, have you in your personal interactions with fellow colleagues have had people who were greatly, and uh, you know, exhibited great animus towards EP and now they're fully on the EP train? That's a good question. None come to mind right now because I guess in the ecosystem I grew up in, people are already somewhat EP compatible because they had self-selected into that ecosystem, that okay. small ecosystem. Um, but I, there might be some that I don't recollect. Yeah. Okay. Uh, two more questions and then uh, we can wrap it up. Uh, first question, where do you see some of the most fertile areas of EP being, uh, and before, before you answer. So, uh, you know, you could say, yeah, but there's still tons of stuff to do in mating. There's still tons of stuff to do on the menstrual cycle and so on. So you can give an answer at that granular level or a broader level, anything you want. What are some of the exciting stuff coming up in EP in the next 10, 20 years? Well, hopefully um, applications to cultural evolution will develop more. So there's, you know, this somewhat separate field of, of cultural evolution. Um, and within that field of cultural evolution, there are kind of broadly two schools, one based in the in the uh, US and one based you know, in Paris with you know, Dan and, and, and some of, of our colleagues here. And the, the, the American school, you know, where that dominates the field uh, tends to be mostly or kind of somewhat agnostic about psychology. And, the, you know, it's like it's not the social science, you know, standard science model, but, you know, psychology would be you have a few broad heuristics, you know, I'm, I'm simplifying too much, but um, whereas we think that, you know, really understanding the detail of cognitive mechanisms and, and their evolved function is really crucial to understand how culture works and, and what cultural elements will be more successful. And so I think that, um, you know, reinforcing this interaction between countercultural evolution and evolutionary psychology is something that that is going to be very exciting over the next uh, the next couple of decades. Yeah. So where would you situate the the Joe Hendricks, the dual inheritance model folks? They're all fitting under the the non the American. The American. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, got you. Uh, I mean, if if I were to answer my own question, I think some of the mm -hmm. exciting areas in the next 10, 20 years will be applications of EP in this. So whether it be, you know, I apply it in the business school and economics mm -hmm. or consumer behavior, whether you apply it in law, whether you apply it in, I think those might be some of the, because yes, of course, there's always going to be interesting new stuff to, to discover about mating behavior and its evolutionary roots. Uh, I'm not saying we've, we've covered everything, but it'll be a plus Delta. Whereas mm -hmm. sort of going yeah. into a new field that's never been touched or very, very rarely been touched by an EP lens and now Darwinizing that field, I think that's where you're going to get some of your biggest bang for your buck. What do you think? No, I completely agree. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Last question. Uh, mm -hmm. What are some projects that you are currently working on that you'd like to use this opportunity to promote? Take it away, Hugo. Yeah, thanks. So I'm, I'm working on, on, it's a very kind of, I guess, introspective project. I'm working on, on kind of intellectuals and, and what motivates scientists and philosophers and mathematicians to, to do what they do, because you know, within an evolutionary perspective, it all seems like really kind of bizarre behavior to be obsessing over, you know, the proof of, you know, Fermat's less conjecture or, you know, or even like the evil function of whatever cognitive mechanism, like it doesn't seem to make much sense. And and then from a, from the point of view of cultural evolution, Science also is very bizarre because most of the products of science are extremely boring to just about everybody in the world except, you know, 10 people. Um, so it seems as if, so the two disciplines I, I think have the most promise, you know, in, in the social sciences are evolutionary psychology and, and cultural evolution. And it seems as if science um, 
you know contradicts both of them. And so I'm going to try to 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 see if how 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 everything can be reconciled. Can I offer a possible Please. explanation? Yeah. So in in uh, in my and forgive me, I don't, I don't mean to engage in a shameless plug of of my own work, but in yeah. my my next book that's coming out in July uh, is a book on well, it's called actually the sad truth about happiness. Eight mm-hmm. eight, eight ways to lead a uh, anyways lead lead a good life and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, in one of the chapters, which I call life as a playground. Uh, I basically mm. argue that there that there are many things that seem austere and in cases somber uh, where you you really benefit from viewing them as a form of play. So let's take an extreme example. I grew up in the Lebanese Civil War, which can't get much more somber than that. Mm-hmm. And yet the desire to play was there. There are there mm-hmm. are there's even a great book on how in 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 the Holocaust people would play. I mean, the, the prisoners mm-hmm. would, would engage in play. Now, let's link it to what you're doing. Well, I argue that science and intellectual pursuits is the ultimate form of play, right? Mm-hmm. And so if you were to ask me to be part of your study and you said, well, why do you do what why you do? I would say, well, I'm, I'm a purist and I just love to pursue truth and I'm just a playful guy, right? So yeah, I'm yeah. always thinking about linking. It's fun, right? I can't believe yeah, no, it. Is I, exactly. Yeah, it is. It is. But you know, why we find it fun is kind of you know, I guess there are many, many forms of play, and and it's 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 interesting why for some of us because it's quite it's not quite universal, but for some of us, we find making you know doing science so so you know so enjoyable. But do you, so uh, in 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 your, I don't know how far you are in this project. Are you looking as the uh, at the play motive as one explanation for for why intellectual? I haven't considered that. No, I mean, I'm, I'm, I guess I guess I'm thinking about curiosity more generally. Um, but no, it's true. I mean, the 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 play angle is really interesting, and I'll I'll, I'll have to think about it. Yeah, thank you. Wonderful, oh, of course. You uh, go. What a pleasure to speak to you. Yesterday, I was talking to a friend of mine, who a very good friend of mine, who's a clinical psychologist by training. Actually, mm-hmm. he's a cross-cultural clinical psychologist at, at my university, and uh, he was telling me, "Oh, who, who are some uh, some guests you've got coming up?" And I said, "Oh, tomorrow I'm speaking to Hugo Mercier." And uh, if it means anything to you, he was incredibly impressed and excited that I was. Oh, well, <laughs> well I'm, I'm, that's very, that's very flattering. Thank you. <laughs> so, uh, pleasure talking to you. Please come back. It is great. Anytime again. Thank you so much. Take Thank care. Thank you. Cheers. Bye.